if you guys have your Bibles, turn to First uh, Thess- <laughs> turn to First Thessalonians chapter four, chapter four. Middle school and high school, you guys are all going to be in here tonight. Um, we're doing one message together. First Thessalonians chapter four. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump into the passage. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have chosen to communicate to us who you are. Um, the story of redemption, who Jesus is, that you've given us in the Bible the means that we can draw near to Christ. That in the Bible you've exposed to us who Jesus is and how we can get to know him. So Lord, I pray that tonight as we investigate what it's going to be like when Christ returns, that we would be filled with hope as we await the return of your son. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay, are we good? I think we're good. Um, I cannot stand not knowing about something. Like, like if 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 Sarah if Sarah like tells me that like like I got you something, I don't even care like about knowing. Like, I don't need to know what, like, a gift is, like a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. Like, I don't have to know any of that early. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is when it's, like, dangled in front of me, like, I got you something and you can't know what it is, that's when I just start, like, my stomach starts to churn. Like, I don't, I don't care if, if you surprise me with something or whatever, but if you tell me that you, you know something that I don't, I'm, like, I'm freaking out inside. And uh, one of the greatest things about today is that we have this great tool called Google in the internet, right? And so, like, Google is now, I think, the number one settler of arguments in the world right now, right? Because, like, if you're arguing about something, you just Google it, you figure out who's wrong very quickly, end of argument, it's done. Some people I know, like, think they're smarter than Google, and so I've, you know, I've gotten into it with somebody, or, you know, we've talked about something, and then, you know, we Google it, I find out that I'm right, and then all of a sudden, like, no, Google is wrong, and they're right, and we have a conversation about that as well, and I've been the guy who says that Google is wrong, too, um, especially when it comes to things like the Bible, because sometimes the Bible is not the best thing to Google, because you got some crazy answers out there, but anyway, so we have this wonderful thing called Google, right, and if I want to know something, I can just, like, pull it up on my phone, type in a question, boom, there it is immediately. But one of the interesting things about today, and, and I think one of the things that we don't really think about is that um, too much information is actually very dangerous. And the reason why I think too much information is dangerous is because when we have access to an, an unlimited amount of information at the palm of our hand, we forget what it looks like to think deeply about something for a long period of time. What I mean is, think about it this way. We'll, 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 we'll think about this as it relates to reading the Bible. Raise your hand if you've ever opened up a Bible ever to read it. I'm just curious whether it was one word or, yeah, okay. So most of us. And I'm, if you're anything like me and you've read the Bible, your Bible reading might look something like this. You open up the Bible Maybe you do like the drop and flop method, which I do not recommend. The drop and flop method is, what does the Lord want to say to me today? And you just kind of do this, and you open it up, and you maybe close your eyes, and you go. And then you read some obscure, like weird verse that you're like, what in the world does this mean? 
and then you're like, you're like really, really jacked up. You don't know what's going on. Well, I'm just saying that's not the way that the Bible is meant to be read, but sometimes we do that. Or maybe like if you're like me, I like to have a plan, right? So like I hop on like the Bible app or I use something called Logos that um, creates a plan for you. And so like daily I have this like plan of like, here's what I'm going to read and here's how much and whatever. But if you're anything like me, whatever it is you're reading, you just kind of look at it and you read it and then you close your book you put it down, and you like forget about it for the rest of the day. Um, it's almost the same response that you get when you check your Instagram feed. You, you just kind of scroll through, and then you put it down, and, and you're done. Unless somebody did something like really, really sweet, then you're like, wow, well, I wish I did that. You know? um, but too much information can be dangerous because, because, because we have access to so much all at the same time it's so hard for us to just think about one thing for an extended period of time. It's almost like we get information ADD and we jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And we just, we just don't think deeply about one thing for an extended period of time. It's very difficult for us to do today. Um, and that's not good. Many of us do this with, with concepts in the Bible. Many of you might have done this about heaven or hell or eternal life, or Jesus, or many of like the weighty things that the Bible talks about. We, we just kind of give quick attention to them. We move on throughout our day. And the danger of doing this, and the danger of too much information is, uh, you, again, you, you get on Google, and you Google something like, what is heaven? And you're going to get some really, really, really crazy answers that, that do not agree with or line up with this, Right? Um, a very quick answer that I can give you that doesn't line up with the Bible is if, if you say, what is heaven? And they say it's a, a, like a place in the clouds where we're going to spend an eternity with Jesus. That's not what the Bible communicates about heaven. That's not how the Bible talks about heaven. And we're going we're gonna to get into heaven a little bit tonight and what heaven is and what the Bible has to say about it. But um, the reality is, and the, and the reason why I want to talk about too much information and not knowing and, and things like that is because there is so much of a misunderstanding when it comes to thinking about heaven and eternity and the return of Jesus. We have so much misunderstanding, so much that we don't know about these things that it leads us to have a weak faith in Christ because we, we don't know what to have faith in. Or we get so many mixed messages, right, from like Hollywood or movies communicating what heaven is or our friends communicating about what heaven is and church communicating about what heaven is and movies or, or, or books or, or articles or, or answers online or whatever that communicate about what heaven is. And all of these answers seem to be conflicting with one another and it, it creates in us just huge amounts of confusion. And that confusion leads to weak faith. And, and the reason why I'm talking about this is because the first words in our text tonight are, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know what's coming. And so that's why we're talking about this tonight. Because, because Paul in 1 Thessalonians is going to make the case that Christ has risen from the dead. This is the big point of our message tonight. That Christ has risen from the dead giving us incredible hope as we wait for his return. You see, the Christian life is a life of waiting. And a lot of us don't talk about that. You see, the return of Jesus is something that's maybe avoided or not talked about a lot because, again, there's, there's much information about the return of Jesus that is confusing or weird or hard to understand. And we're going we're gonna to open up a Bible passage tonight that immediately sticks out. Uh, a couple months ago, or about a month ago, we 
actually had the high school students in here read through the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. After they read through the entire book of 1 Thessalonians, we came back and I said, hey, what stuck out to you? You read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians, what stuck out to you? And a student immediately went to this passage because this passage sounds really weird and obscure. And we're going to get to that here in a minute. But the main point of this passage is, is one of hope. Paul is writing to uh, a group of people who are suffering for the gospel. And a lot of the people have died as a result of their faith in the gospel. And so what was happening was the church, because the church was very new, they didn't know about like what was coming next and what it was like after you died and all of these things. The, all they knew was that Jesus was going to return. Jesus was physically going to come back. He was going to descend down from heaven. They knew this. They didn't know when. They didn't know how. They didn't know what it was going to look like. And a lot of these people were really troubled because unlike us, you see, for us, our main hope when we think about eternity, when we think about the gospel, when we think about all these things, our main hope is when we die, where are we going to go? Heaven, right? That's, that's our main hope when we think about the Bible, that when I die, my confidence, my faith is in Jesus so that when I die, I go to heaven. For the Thessalonians their confidence was that Jesus was going to return and he was going to change everything. There's a difference in their hope and ours. And I, and I hope that tonight we get to correct that a little bit. But because their hope was in Jesus' return, they were troubled about their friends who had died. You see, the Thessalonians had a problem. The problem was they were in persecution. This persecution, this suffering that they were receiving for their faith was causing their friends who were following Jesus to die. So we have Christians who have died... And their hope is in the return of Jesus. And so they were afraid that if people died before Jesus came back, they were actually going to miss out on his return. They were going to miss the return of Jesus. They were going to miss the great hope of what Christianity brings in the mind of these people. Their main hope was in the return of Jesus. And their friends who had died, they thought were going to miss that return. And so Paul is writing them to comfort them and say, no, that's not the case. They're not going to miss the return. And here's how it's all going to work out. There's a lot of misunderstanding as to what the return of Jesus was going to be like. And so Paul wrote this passage to help correct some of that. So we're going to read the first couple verses starting in verse 13. It says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. So Paul's using this, this, this idea of sleep to describe death. And the reason why he's doing that is because in the, for the Christian, death is not final. Death does not have the final say. There's, there's more. And so we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul is writing these people to encourage them and give inject hope into their grief. A while ago, um, I had a really close friend of mine die. He passed away. And uh, I haven't been a Christian very long. I've been a Christian since 2016. That's six years, six-ish years. And uh, since becoming a Christ follower, I've yet to have somebody that I know for sure was in Christ die. Everybody that I know or everybody that I've been close to that's kind of passed away, I really haven't known if they knew Jesus. In fact, most of them, I, I, I'm pretty sure, certain, didn't know Jesus. And for me... There's so much torment in grieving without hope. Thinking about the people that I know in my life who I've been close to 
that have died that haven't known the Lord, it's, it's horrifying to think about that. It's tormenting to think about that. And so Paul is writing him these people to say, no, 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 you don't grieve like those who have no hope. You see, people who don't know Jesus, there is no hope for them in death. There is no hope in death. Death has the final say. That's it. But for the Christian, their understanding of death and what Jesus did on the cross and how that affects death blows this whole thing up and gives so much hope for the believer in death and the believer who's grieving for the believer who's died. And so he's writing to give them hope. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul roots confidence in his belief in Jesus in his, and, and then connects that to the hope that he has for these believers who have died. He says, we know that Jesus died, that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, a physical man, died. He was crucified on a cross. He was dead for three days. On the third day, he rose again bodily. Jesus' resurrection was, was physical. It was not a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a symbolic resurrection. It wasn't fiction. Jesus' resurrection happened. A physical man died, was dead for days, came back to life. But Jesus didn't just come back to life. Jesus ascended into heaven. You can read about it in the first chapter of Acts or Matthew 28. Jesus ascended into heaven. And right now, as the Bible communicates, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory, at the seat of power in the heavenly realm where God is. Jesus is physically sitting there. A man is sitting at God's right hand. A man who is fully God and fully man at the same time, sitting at God's right hand. And Paul's confidence in this leads him to, to the conclusion that if Jesus died and rose again, we are so united to Jesus because of our faith in him. We're so connected to Jesus because of our faith with him. We, we identify so much with Jesus because of our faith with him that just as Jesus died, rose again, and is with the Father, we too will die and be with the Father. And so the Bible communicates this idea that when we die, the moment that we die in this life, we will ascend and be in heaven. And that's about all the details that, that the Bible gives us about the heaven right now. That if I were to drop dead right now, I would be with the Lord. And that's all the details that the Bible gives. That's it. That I'll be with the Father. It doesn't say how I'll be there. It doesn't say what state of existence that I'll be in, whether it's like physical or, or non-physical. We do know that our bodies remain here, so there's some sort of like immaterial, like non-physical spiritual presence that I'll have in heaven. But that's it. That's all the details that we have about heaven right now. And so what I want you to, if you're anything like me, you probably have this thought of what heaven is because of movies that you've seen or whatever. And so the cloudy angels and harp, we're all flying around, happy, joy, joy, heaven image that you might have in your head. I just want you to take that tonight and put it on the shelf. Don't even think about it. Because what I hope we're gonna do tonight is just blow that whole image up. Take a stick of dynamite to it and blow it up because that's not what heaven is like. That's not what heaven is like. But real quick, before we get there, I want to ask you something. How often have you thought about the return of Jesus? Right? Like, think about this. If the people who the Bible was originally written to, if their hope was in the resurrection of Jesus, 
his ascension into heaven and his future return, all three of those things, why don't we think about the resurrection very much? Why don't we talk about, or not the resurrection, the return of Jesus? Why don't we, why don't we think about the return of Jesus very much? Why don't, we, why don't we talk about the return of Jesus very much? The whole New Testament over and over and over and over and over again speaks of this eager expectation, this eager anticipation, this eager just waiting, like waiting for Jesus to return. Like think about that moment when you're in class and there's like 30 minutes left. It's the last class period of the day and you're like, come on. And you're looking at the clock and the more you look at the clock, the slower like the minutes get and you're just, you're ready to go. You're ready to run out the door and all of a sudden you hear the bell ring and as soon as the bell ring, like your, your joy is full. You're out the door. You're ready to rock and roll. You're ready to do whatever it is that you want to do through the rest of the day, right? But you're, you're waiting. You're waiting. You're like on the edge of your seat. You're waiting. That, that same kind of waiting is how the New, New Testament describes our waiting for the return of Jesus. Now, if the New Testament describes that we should be waiting like that for Jesus, what, like why don't we? Why is it not on the forefront of our minds? What's going on? I think one of the reasons why we don't wait eagerly for the return of Jesus is, is we don't understand it. Like, it's confusing to us. Like, we read passages like this, and, and, and like, you guys are going to I'm just going to read this part of the, the, the text real quick. You can go ahead and put that up, Bam. Like, listen to this. This sounds really weird. Like, sometimes we just accept the weird things that the Bible says because we're like, oh, it's God's word. Like, he'll work it out. But, like, if you genuinely look at what this is saying, this is really, really strange. He says this, For we declare this to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul's basically saying, we, we won't go first. We won't be more important than those who have died. But then he says this. Listen to this. Close your eyes. I want you to flex your imagination for, for just a moment. Because Paul, when he injects hope into these people, he doesn't give them principles. He doesn't give them rules. He doesn't give them a list of things that are going to happen. He gives them an image. Because he wants to use an image and their imagination to stir up and spark hope. So, so try to picture what the Bible is communicating here. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Like that's a wild picture of the return of Jesus. Like he's going he's gonna to descend. There's going to be a, a cry from an archangel. What the heck is an archangel? There's going to be a trumpet that's just going to blast and somehow everybody in the world is going to hear this trumpet at the same time. But not only that, there's going to be a cry of command and every single person who ever existed who has been in Christ is somehow going to rise from the dead like that. But not only are all these people going to rise from the dead, but they're going to they're go and meet with a descending Jesus. There's going to be this man that's going to descend down from heaven. And the people who rise from the dead, they're going to they're go up to meet him. But not just them, those who are alive. So the dead who are in Christ, they're going to rise. They're going to resurrect physically from the dead, just like Jesus did. But then those who are alive, who are left, right? Like, so if this happened right now, that would be us because we haven't died yet. But those who are alive, they're going to, together with those who are dead, going to rise and meet Jesus in the air. 
be caught up with him in the clouds? What, like, what in the world is going on here? Like, that's crazy to think about. Like, if you just sit and try to picture it, it's like, what in the world are we supposed to do with this passage? And one of the reasons why this is so hard to understand is because this is loaded with imagery from the Old Testament. And so, like, if we don't know or are familiar with the Old Testament and what the Old Testament has to say about some of this imagery, this is going to be hard for us to understand. But even more so, if we don't understand heaven, this is going to be really difficult to understand. You see, some people have taken this passage and they've, they've twisted it to mean something that it's not. You see, Jesus isn't stealing people away from the world to take them somewhere else. He's doing something much more significant here. Two weeks after I got married, my wife Sarah and I had the, the, the opportunity of a lifetime. We got to fly over to Bangkok, Thailand, and we went to a ministry conference. And basically, uh, what we had the opportunity to do at this, this conference, it was a huge gathering. There was about 300 Christians that were there from all over the world. There were probably 80-plus countries represented. And the most amazing and sweetest moments of this week-long conference were getting to hear people from all over the world, from different countries, singing in their own languages, like praises and worship to the king. And so literally, like for this, for this week, we got to worship with the nations. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible moment of my life. Probably the coolest trip I've ever been on. And I got to spend it with my wife. It was awesome. Oh, what if I told you that the most exciting part of my trip was not going to Thailand to worship with the nations? What if I told you that the most exciting part of my trip was to hang out in the Tokyo airport for the two hours of layover that we had in Tokyo. Now, Tokyo is like a pretty cool place, right? Like, the, raise your hand if you were like, nah, I'd, I'd spend two hours in Tokyo airport. Like, that'd be fun. Yeah. The coolest thing about the Tokyo airport is wherever you go, it sounds like an arcade. Like, there's just like ding, 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 ding. There's all these cool sounds going off everywhere. It's really sweet. Um, it's outside of the city. It's like in the middle of the country is where the airport is, so you can't see any of Tokyo. But it's a really, really, really cool spot to be for two hours. But what if I told you the most exciting part of the trip was me waiting in that airport for two hours? What would you say to me? I'm crazy, right? That's exactly what I would think. Like, dude, you're going to Thailand to go hang out for a week in the jungle at a resort and worship God with people from all over the world. And you're excited about sitting in an airport for two hours? What if I told you that when we're more excited about heaven and going to heaven when we die, that's exactly what we're doing. Because heaven's not the final destination. Check out this video. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning. 
where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice 
has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. We believe that... So, in this passage, what Jesus is actually doing when he returns is that, that final movement of, of as you see heaven completely united with earth, that's going to start at Jesus' return. And all throughout the book of Thessalonians, what happens is Paul uses this word over and over. He talks about Christ coming, Christ coming, Christ coming, Christ coming. And in the English language, we use coming as like, oh, like you're coming over to my house or, um, you know, we're kind of in, in that kind of way. And, and that word was actually the official term that would be used when a Roman dignitary or the emperor would enter into a city. And so the Thessalonians would have caught what Paul was doing here. You, you see, what would happen when the emperor would come into a city like Thessalonica is this. Somebody would announce, like with a trumpet, that the emperor is coming. And then they would send a representative into the city to proclaim the king is coming, the emperor is coming. And then they would rally together a group of people because the people are excited. They want to see the emperor. And so people in their excitement, they would be roused up and they would be eager to see the emperor. And so they would all get together and they would send a delegation or a group of people out to meet the emperor. And so somebody goes into the city, announces the good news that the emperor is coming. Well, then the emperor gets closer to the city. And as the emperor approaches the city, the, the, this group of people eager to see the emperor would go out and they would meet the emperor and they would usher the emperor back into the city so that the emperor could do what he wanted to do. The Thessalonians were not Jewish. All of the Old Testament language used to describe the day of the Lord or the return of the Messiah, they would not have understood and so what Paul does in this passage is he gets on the level of the Thessalonians and he compares the return of Jesus to the coming of an emperor, of a king. You see, in, in, in this culture, Caesar, who would have been the emperor, would, was actually seen as divine and human. People thought that Caesar was God and man. And Paul was using that imagery to describe the true God-man returning to earth. You see, Jesus is descending from heaven. I want you to use your imagination again. Paul's using a picture here. He's descending from heaven. And then what happens next is somebody announces that he's coming. A trumpet is called, and then the dignitaries start to wake up. The, 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 the people of God start to wake up. The, the dead in Christ rise. Why is Paul writing this? He's writing this to say, your friends who have died who are in Christ, they're going to participate in the, in the coming of Jesus. In fact, they're going to be the first order of business because when Jesus returns, he's going to wake them up. And they and you who are alive are going to rise to meet with him in the air. Well, where's the air? It's the space between the skies, which would have also been called the heavens, and the earth. 
just like when an emperor would enter into a city, they would send a delegation out to meet him in the space between the city and where the emperor was coming from. In this case, in Paul's language of descending from heaven, that space is the air. Well, then the assumed conclusion then in light of that imagery is that that, that delegation would then usher in that king into the earth. They would usher in Jesus into the earth. You see, Jesus is not bringing people to himself to go away somewhere. Jesus is bringing people to himself so that he can come and set up his kingdom entirely on earth so heaven and earth can be one again. And that image gives great hope to the Thessalonian people. And he calls them to proclaim it. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We have to correct our view of how we think about things. And here's the thing. One of the best things about reading the Bible is when you find out that you're wrong about something. Because then you can wrestle with that truth and you can wrestle it down and you can really try to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so I just, I want to encourage you guys to like wrestle with this. Like don't just take my word for it. Like go home and wrestle with this and talk to your parents about it and open up the Bible. And if you want to know other passages to read that talk about the return of Jesus, I'll give them to you. But just wrestle with this. And my, and my hope is, is that as you wrestle with this truth, as you, as you think deeply about this for a long period of time, don't just think about it for a moment and move on to the next thing and just say, oh yeah, John, that's cool, great. And then, and then go on to the next thing. No, no, think deeply. Simmer over this, stew over this. Because, because the longer that you stew over this reality, the greater your hope. The greater your hope, the greater your faith. The greater your faith, the greater your confidence. The greater your confidence, the more united you are with your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the hope of the return of Jesus. Thank you that you've communicated it to us clearly. I pray that tonight as we, we go into groups and just talk about this, this crazy thing that's coming, God, that it would stir up in us an eagerness for your return. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.